Good morning. So I hope it was a good week. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful here. And uh, so I'm hoping that you're ready to get into the Word of God. I just want to dive into it. You ready to go? All right, let's go there. John 1. We're going to start in uh, verse 29. And uh, while you're turning there, you can also kind of get yourself ready. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 as well. Uh, So it's not just uh, John 1, but also Genesis chapter 22. Let me give a little context of what is happening in John 1 uh, before we uh, read it. So what has just happened the day before this moment is that John the Baptist has been inquired upon. Like he, they, he was being investigated and they, the questions were coming from the religious leaders of the time. And these religious leaders were dispatched, likely, uh, from Jerusalem to go out to the Jordan River to find out who it is that is baptizing hundreds of people. There was probably an alarm going off in Jerusalem because for baptism to happen, which has existed for several centuries by this point, it was that if somebody is being baptized, then likely they are leaving their faith to go to a new one, or they're leaving their family to go to a new one, because it's a transition. It's something that was used in their culture to transition your identity from one thing to another. So when they hear that there's hundreds of Jews being baptized out at the Jordan River, then of course they're going to ask, well, what is the meaning of this baptism? So they go out there, they find that John the Baptist is preaching a message that is about repentance. Turn from your wicked ways and turn back to God. Well, the religious leaders didn't have much to argue with that message. I mean, that's a good message. But they're seeing that there's a power and authority with the message of John the Baptist that caused them to ask questions that, may, that kind of tells you what they're thinking. First of all, they ask, are you the Messiah? To which John says, no, I am not the Messiah. And then they're asking, well, are you a prophet or maybe the prophet? And then John tells them, no, I am the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness preparing a way for the Lord, to which they knew that that was a quote from the prophets of old that was saying that there was going to be a forerunner before the coming Messiah. And John has just declared himself to be that forerunner. The next day is where we pick up the text in John 1, verse 29. So would you read with me? The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man is coming after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So the initial statement that you see from John is that he says, Look, there is the Lamb of God. 
Now, to a Hebrew learner, they would understand that there's a lot of background meaning to that statement that would suggest that he is a substitutionary lamb, a provision by God alone. And connected to that would be that it's a substitutionary lamb that we're deserving of death, but the lamb in our place dies so that our sins are covered. Now, historically, that had been a temporal sacrifice. But now, a man is being pointed at as being the Lamb of God. Historically, it was always a literal lamb. But now, John, who has just said the day before, I am the forerunner, is pointing to Jesus and saying, He is the Lamb of God. Now, to understand from the Hebrew learner's perspective, all that is connected to this idea that Jesus is that lamb. You have to understand what happened in Genesis 22. You see, that's the first time a substitutionary animal, as in a ram in this case, was used to cover that of sins. So let's read what's found in Genesis chapter 22. And the context there is, is that Abraham has been told by God, go to this mountain I assign to you. Go there, and I want you to build an altar, and I want you to sacrifice your son upon that altar. Now, that's a confusing charge because Abraham knows and has already been told by God, a messenger from God, that this son, Isaac, is the promised son of which a great nation will be built. So to kill him doesn't make sense. But we know from Scripture that in his heart, Abraham supposed that, well, God gave him to me in a miraculous way, so I assume he will give him back to me in a miraculous way. So he set out for the mountain that God had assigned to go and indeed sacrifice his son on an altar. Now, this mountain is no small thing because you're going to discover that on this mountain so much happens that we now that can connect to the John 1, 29 moment of being told Jesus is the Lamb of God. So let's look at the original provision of a ram. So in verse, uh, we're going to look at verse 12 to start. So just as Abraham's about to kill his son, a messenger comes and says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Or you can say, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord... It will be provided. So from that point on, that mountain is the mountain of the Lord where he will provide. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on a seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations 
on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. All nations of the earth will be blessed. Now for those of you that have known Jesus Christ, maybe for years or maybe for more as recent, I'm going to assume that the majority of us here in this room are not of Jewish descent. Would you agree that as the nations of the world, we have indeed been blessed because of Abraham's obedience? We have been blessed because indeed, through the offspring of Isaac and on down the line, there is a blessing that comes, which brings us then back to the modern time. Because Abraham, by faith, because he is willing to sacrifice his one and only son, and to do so on this mountain that they knew as Moriah, the place where the Lord provides, God indeed provided a substitutionary ram. And therefore, that place was forever marked. Forever marked as a place where God provides, in the hope that there will be a day when not only does he provide, but it will be a blessing to all nations. Now, back to verse 29 of John 1. John the Baptist says, Look, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Basically saying that for the first time in history, it is not a literal sheep, lamb, or ram. It is a person. And as we know from John the Apostle, from the earlier part, as I shared last week, that John refers to Jesus as the Word of God, the Word made flesh, who is the beginning and end, Alpha and Omega, the one by which grace and truth comes. And indeed, He is the Messiah. Jesus, Yeshua, is the one, the Christ. You see, in this moment, now you have a testimony coming from John the Baptist saying that he is the Lamb of God. He is now the substitutionary Lamb by which we can then find salvation. So Jesus, the one and only Son of God, then is revealed as this Lamb, as the one who is the offspring of Abraham. He too will be killed just like a substitutionary lamb would be. But in this case, he is tried, he is beaten, he is crucified, and he resurrects where? On Mount Moriah, the place where the original sacrifice happened. See, 1,800 years have surpassed, and now the Lamb of God, the once and for all sacrifice, the substitutionary Lamb is going to be sacrificed in the exact same spot so that the rest of the world can be blessed. That's where I connect back to verse 14 of Genesis 22 where he says that the people to this day refer to that mountain as the mountain where the Lord will provide. 1,800 years later, God is providing. He is providing the sacrifice for all time through his very own son, Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God. And as a result, all nations are blessed. 
So for those of us that understand and know the story of Jesus, how he came and to the Temple Mount where he was tried, he was convicted of treason, uh, unnecessarily so, under an unlawful trial, and then beaten, yes, up on that hill, and then on that hill in a different spot of that hill was crucified, and then a different spot on that hill was put into a grave, and yes, on that hill, in a different spot, in that grave, he came to life on the third day, forever being the substitute, covering the sins of the world. That, my friends, is the story of stories. So when John, in this moment, three years before that sacrifice happens, says, there is the Lamb of God, It is putting people on notice that God is about to do something in their lifetime that is going to forever bless the nations of the world. In verse 34, he also makes another statement. It's not just that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but he also says in verse 34 that he has seen and testifies that this is indeed God's chosen one. We know the Greek term Christ, so he is the Christ. In the Hebrew term, he is the Messiah. And so he is the one that God said from long ago will be the one, the promised one, that will come and make all things right. How beautiful is this, that the chosen one has come. The first time we hear hear any mention of there being a chosen one is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God tells that the, the Adam and Eve that what you have caused to bring harm through the temptation of the serpent, I will then make right when there is an offspring of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent, the snake, Satan himself. He will crush it and forever conquer that which was harmed in the garden. So we have all these prophecies that speak to this moment that now there is a lamb who is going to cover the, the, for once and for all the sins of the world. And yes, he is the chosen one that's been spoken of from the beginning that is going to be the one by which God makes all things new. And yes, this one, other promises that it came along the line as Abraham was told, your household, through your offspring, yes, even through Isaac, the nations of the world be blessed, but so also it was said of Jacob. So also it was said it would be of the tribe of Judah. And so also it was said that it would be through the house of David. Jesus was of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah, from the father of Jacob, and yes, from the son, Isaac. So Jesus is fulfilling many promises as being the chosen one, And as John the Apostle said, he is the Son of God. Now, in this text, there's something unique that happens that if you just read through it, you kind of might might miss and think how strange this is said. But in verse 31, look what it says there about John the Baptist when he's speaking and explaining him who Jesus is and his own journey and understanding who Jesus is. Verse 31. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed. So John the Baptist acknowledges that he did not know him, but he does see him, and he sees 
the glory of him. And it's his call and, and role to then reveal him before others. But this was not always the case that John the Baptist could say with strong affirmation and confidence that Jesus is the one. In fact, there's a journey to it. So where was the moment that John realized, oh, you are the Son of God. You are the Lamb of the world. You are the chosen one. Well, it happens at the baptism of Jesus. Now, if you understand what it says in the baptism of Jesus is that when he came into the water, John said something to him that kind of gives you a clue that John was aware of the specialness of Jesus. But he's saying here he did not know who the Lamb of God was and the Chosen One. So how do you make those connections? Well, a lot of us here have grown up knowing who Jesus is, correct? I mean, how many of you would say, I pretty much, since I was a youngest child, I have been taught about who Jesus is? All right? So the majority here in this room. How many of you that had just held your hand up would say that it wasn't till later that as time went on that I, I, that I actually got to the place where I can say, I know Jesus? How many of you would say, that's true of me, that I knew about Jesus, but there was a point where I know Jesus. You see, there's a difference from knowing about to knowing. When Jesus came into the water to be baptized by John, John made a statement of saying that um, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus responded, no, you must do, the, do this to have all things fulfilled. So John knew something about Jesus to know that he was higher than him. And why is that possible? Well, you know from the story of John's birth that, that his mother had an angel come and say, you're going to have a child. And this child is literally going to be the forerunner. John the Baptist says in John 1 that he knew he was the forerunner. So mom passed on to son his role. And the Holy Spirit was upon John and he spoke with power and authority. But it was also likely that John's mother, who was a relative of Mary, Jesus' mother, that she was able to tell the story of Mary. Because Mary and Elizabeth shared and compared stories. We have that in Scripture. And I'm sure that was not withheld from John. That Mary had a child that was also announced by an angel that she was to expect him. And that all the things that happened around the birth of that child was also likely shared with John. So John has all this knowledge that Jesus too's his birth was announced by angels. And that there was much surrounding his birth that was significant. They're also be cousins, so they've probably had other encounters with each other, to which the character of Jesus was on display. Now, John knows he is going to be the one to prepare the way of the Lord, because his message in baptism was, be baptized, repent, and prepare yourself for the coming of the kingdom of God, because it's near. So he knows that the Messiah is coming, and he's near, so Enter Jesus into the water. They know each other. They're cousins. He comes into the water. He knows that Jesus is higher than them. But again, not for sure. Jesus gets baptized. 
Jesus comes out of the water. Two things happen. Something visual and something audible. The visual was a something like that of a dove that clearly was identified by the eyewitnesses as being the Spirit of God rested upon Jesus and stayed. Then a voice from heaven speaks and says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Now for the Hebrew learner and the one who grew up under Hebrew scholarship would know that the dove was the symbol of God. It was the emblem that the Jewish people would use to signify God. So when they see something like that of a dove resting upon Jesus, they would, have, they would immediately begin to think that's the symbol of God resting upon Jesus. And if there was any question as to whether or not that was meant to be taken that way as being the symbol of God, God actually speaks for those who, could, who were there. And he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So John sees this moment. He hears this moment. And it forever changes his perspective. It's not just he knows Jesus and about Jesus. Now he knows who he really is. Why? Because look at verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven and as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then I, John, saw this and testified to it. So John has his come to Jesus moment, if you will, where he sees Jesus for who he is. And it did not catch him by surprise because he knew enough about Jesus to be able to accept this in full faith. You see, there's something in each of our journeys that is similar to John. We know a lot about Jesus, but at some point, there's that come to Jesus moment where we realize everything we've ever been taught about Jesus is true. And it usually comes in a moment of a human encounter where somebody testifies to the power of Jesus' work in their lives. And they point to Jesus in that story, and then they come to Jesus realizing he is who he says he is. He is what I've learned about, and I come to him. A moment that really stands out to me happened in South Africa, again at the same school I referenced last week, where I was playing chess with this young man who was in fourth grade. And during this chess match, after, by the way, it was the third chess match, and I had beaten him the first two times, and he was, he was studying me, and he was going to beat me in this third round. And, and so while we're there, he distracts me by talking about Jesus. And he says, so, Jesus is a pretty cool guy. Kind of a funny way to say it. Especially in their culture where that's not a common term to say. But he knew us Americans well enough to say it like that. Then he says, he's one of the best voices we could listen to, right? And I could tell that he was kind of lumping Jesus in with many good people. You see, he comes out of a tribe that would teach, yes, that Jesus is an important man, but so are other people important people. And Jesus is one of the ones you can listen to. That was his lens of Jesus. He had also been attending the school for several years, which is a Christian boarding school. 
but he was getting mixed up in his head. So he knew a lot about Jesus, but to him, Jesus was just one of many. So as we're going through, he begins to ask another question. So why do you do so much for Jesus? So I begin to tell him, like, what Jesus means to me. Again, he continues to play the chess match. We get the break ends. We have to go back into class, and I'm assisting in his classroom. And finally, during a break time in the classroom, we're all sitting there. He asks me another question, and he says, So... Why do you give your life to Jesus more than any other person here on this earth? The teacher hears the question. says, students, why don't we gather over here on this carpet and let's let Pastor Tony share the answer to that question. I didn't expect a full audience. I didn't even know that his question had been heard. But that teacher clued in on it. So about a dozen students sat around me, and I began to share why Jesus matters so much to me. And I, and I shared my own personal story of, of how Jesus has changed my life. But then I shared why Jesus stands out above anybody else, that at his name, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. As the time went on through this story, I'm seeing their eyes get bigger and bigger, and one By one, I'm seeing them engage more fully into this moment. And then the boy with the chess match looks at me and says, I want to give my life to Jesus. Five others did the same thing. We prayed together, and they all prayed out loud with their beautiful accent and gave their lives to Jesus. And true to their culture, they began to sing and dance, to which I just have to watch. I don't dance very well. Sing, I can hold. But there was true jubilation. They had met Jesus. These kids had all been taught about Jesus. But at some point, they had to come to a place where somebody said, Look, he is the Lamb of God. Look, he is the Savior of the world. Look, he is the Son of God. He is the Chosen One. He isn't just a lamb. He is the lamb. At some point, people have to hear, and then they can receive. You see, one of the things I've learned throughout time is that it's very easy once we meet Jesus and he transforms our life that we assume that Jesus is done with his work in our lives. We are assuming that Jesus is done. The story is written. The canon of scripture is complete, which it is. But that does not mean that he is not still working and that he is not still changing lives. No, this was written so that we can know the story of Jesus and to know that he is the one by which lives can be changed. And as John says, when he realized who Jesus was, he's called now to reveal his true identity. He is called to reveal him and let others know so that they won't be mistaken. He's not just a Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the lamb, not just a lamb. And he's able to say it because he's seen and he's received. I find it interesting That as we go through this text, that I say, why is it that we stop looking for Jesus at work around us? 
John could have easily missed his moment and just dismissed that Jesus is an incredible cousin. But he was looking. He was looking intently for the one whom the Holy Spirit would fall upon. And then he sees it, and then he knows. And he, was, and he gave his life to commitment in that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he died giving that testimony. How often have we missed Jesus at work around us? Sometimes we think that Jesus is only meant to be testified to on a stage. Jesus is only meant to be testified to when somebody is willing to sit in a chair and listen to a teacher. What if Jesus has called us to look for where he's at work and point to it so that others can see and be invited into relationship? We're told to look. I was taught a great lesson my freshman year of college. I got involved in a ministry called Chi Alpha. The ministry was led by a bunch of college students with some local families from a local church. And the point was, is those parents were the hosts, but the connection and the bridge to teenagers were the college students. So the role of the college students was to reach high school students by building relationships with them and then inviting them to a gathering that was at a house where there would be food, fun, and a message. I was invited to be on this team by a professor. This professor said, I see something in you that I believe God wants to use. And so would you be willing to get involved with this ministry? And he explained how it worked. And I said, sure, so I'll get involved. And so the key then was to figure out how I can get connected to teenagers in this town that I just moved to because of the university I was attending. So I got involved with the baseball program and I became an assistant coach and started building relationships with the baseball team. As time went on in that freshman year, the group called Chi Alpha was growing. We began with like 40 students and it was now about 100 students meeting at this person's home. We had to recruit more college students to help. The professor tapped a young man who was also a freshman at the university I was at. His name was Scott. He asked Scott to get involved. And as time went on, I began to doubt whether Scott was a good selection. So I went to the professor. And I said to him, I said, I'm really not sure that Scott was a good choice. Maybe you should have considered someone else. The professor, being wise and much wiser than me, said, well, why do you think that? I said, well, he's been here with us several weeks now. He's never been up front. He's very unimpressive. He's not very magnetic. Basically, what I was saying is he wasn't like me. Now, please hear me. I am saying you, we all have an inflated view of ourselves. And I certainly did as a freshman in high school. And what I'd come to believe is that there were several of us college students who had similar makeups. We didn't mind being in front of the masses. We didn't mind having the microphone, if you will. We didn't mind being the ones that can make the games more fun. We didn't mind having kids being drawn to us and gathering around us each week. Scott was not that guy. Scott was never up front. Scott wasn't drawing people to him. So my professor said to me, well, that's an interesting perspective you have, but I want you to do me a favor. Why don't you take this next week and just watch Scott 
and see if you hold the same opinion after that week. So that following week, big gatherings happening, a lot of energy, a lot of my peers were up in front speaking, and I got, had my moment as well. And then, you know, as I'm working the crowd that night, I'm, I'm watching Scott. And I see Scott walk over to this person that was kind of, when you get about 100 kids, there are some that just don't feel like they're apart, and they kind of draw to the back wall. I saw Scott go over to this one that was kind of by themselves and began to talk with them and, and got them to laugh. And then I saw Scott go over to a couple others that weren't kind of gathering in but were left to the wall. And then later in the evening, I saw Scott talking with somebody who was by themselves. And then he placed his hand on that person and began to pray over that individual. The professor caught me and said, what do you think? I said, where is that kid that he's been praying? I haven't seen him before. Is he new tonight? And he goes, no, he's been here for months. But you've never seen him. But Scott did. What have you learned about Scott? And I said, I learned that Scott goes and sees the ones that aren't seen. And we need more Scots on our team. And less of me. He goes, Good, so we can keep Scott, and I said, we can keep Scott. I learned a lot that sometimes we can be busy about our own paradigm of how God should work, and we miss the God stories that are happening around us. We miss the God stories that's happening around us, and we can say, look, there's Jesus at work. There's Jesus at work over here. Do you realize that if we don't do that, if we stop pointing to where Jesus is at work, there's people whose lives are at stake by the absence of such a point. If we stop looking for Jesus at work and identifying it and calling it out and showing it to others, how will people ever know that there is hope to be found in a society and a culture and a time where hope seems to be fleeting? We need Scots who looks and sees the hopeless and touches them and points them to Jesus. Yes, you need people who are willing to stand in front of others and declare the truth of God. But it takes all of us to point to Jesus and how he's changed our lives so that others can more easily access the gospel. We use a term here called oikos. It's that Greek term that the scriptures use to define your sphere of influence, those that you do life with. There are people in your life that I cannot access. There are people that you can see that I cannot see. And if you do not point them to Jesus, how will they ever know that the Lamb of God, that is the substitutionary Lamb, who is the chosen one, the Son of God, who has provided the means of reconciliation and redemption and ultimately hope for this life, how will they ever know unless you point to Jesus? These encounters are important. People's lives depend on it. They need to know there is a lamb, the lamb of God. If you agree with this statement, after I read it, would you say amen? Jesus is at work, and people need to see the hope that he brings. Amen.
Let's pray. Jesus, I can only fathom how many people that our lives intersect with that if we say nothing, they will never know. People's eternal destinies rely upon our ability to point to Jesus as the one who's changed our life. Point to Jesus who's changing lives all around. Pointing to Jesus who's at work around us and even at work around those who do not know him. If it's not for your church to point to him, how many people will miss the Lamb of God? So God, forgive us for stopping our journey in pursuit of identifying your work around us and in us. Forgive us that we've just been satisfied with knowing about you and not drawing in closer to know you more. And forgive us all the more that even when we realize and identified who you are and that you are the Son of God and you're the Lamb of God and you are our substitutionary Lamb for even our lives, forgive us when we've stopped revealing that and testifying that to other people. So God, break our hearts for those who are in need of seeing Jesus. And also open our eyes anew to see that you're still at work revealing yourself and changing lives. You are the hope that we need. You are the hope that this culture needs. You are the hope of the world that the world needs. And the church is the bearer of that good news. Raise us up to declare the great glory of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the one you sent as the chosen one. I pray this in that powerful name, your son Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing about our living hope? taken the sins of the world how great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into
also an eyewitness to all that Jesus had done, says things that are very similar to what his friend John said. But in this, in Peter's testimony, he makes this comment referring to the Lamb of God. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but rather with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. So with Peter, we say, there is nothing that money can buy or human effort can bring, but what was already provided in full by the saving work of Jesus Christ. He is our lamb. He is the substitution that we would have had to do on our own and being able to die to the consequences of our sin. But instead, Jesus did it for us. Because for us, our death would have meant nothing. It would have just been our end and into eternal damnation. But now, for those who are in Christ, we have an eternity with God the Father to look forward to because we've entered through the curtain, through Jesus Christ's blood that was shed for us. What a story we have. And it is meant to be shared and pointed to. And we've got to keep looking. God is not done working around you. Look for it. Point to it when you see it so that others can be encouraged and go on a journey to discover Jesus as you know him. Amen? Be encouraged. Know that you're the light of the world because the light of God is in you. If you do not have that light, know that Jesus can become that in your life today. I'll be up front. would be glad to talk with you. There are several here in this room that if you want to give your life to Christ, I'm sure you can just say, can you help me with that? Because all it means is crying out to God and saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. And I know that Jesus is the means by which that sin can be paid for. And then you believe in that work and then you give him your life. Let him be Lord. And you'll discover the life that John speaks of, both Johns, John the Apostle and John the Baptist. Amen. God bless and go in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.